From the Los Angeles Times, this is Can't Stop Watching, your TV faves on their TV faves. I'm your host, Ivan Villarreal. On today's episode, we can't stop watching J.B. Smoove. He plays Leon Black on HBO's Curb Your Enthusiasm. We talk about comedy in the age of coronavirus and what it's like working alongside Larry David. Larry's an old school Jewish guy who never heard the term getting that in. You got to get in that in. You know what it meant? I could tell when I was saying it, his eyes were like, yeah, yeah, okay, okay. He had no idea what the hell it meant. We'll also hear JB's thoughtful and personal insights into race in America right now. I called my daughter. I said, I just was thinking about something. And I gave her a call. I said, baby girl, I just want to apologize for the state of the world. I want to apologize to you because I don't know if enough has been done to make sure that you can have all the opportunities you want out of your life. You know, I said, I know how quickly life goes. You only have one life. And a heads up, this episode is longer than previous episodes of Can't Stop Watching because it was just too good. Let's get to it. Now for your Emmy consideration is BBC America's Killing Eve, the delectable story of MI6 agent Eve. I'm not a very nice lady. An enigmatic assassin, Villanelle. Just so you know, I'm kind of a big deal on this industry. Critics hail the third season as deliciously watchable. Haven't you heard? Genre-defying. Wow. And a bloody good time. Obviously. For your Emmy consideration in all categories, including outstanding lead actress in a drama series for Sandra Oh and Jodie Comer. Thank you. Thank you. JB, thanks so much for joining me. Oh, it's good to be here. You know, I was going to ask you, like, what have you learned about your neighbors during this time? Oh, man. You know what? I learned a lot about my neighbors before my neighbors were my neighbors. So, <laughs> you know how you, you, you know your neighbors as neighbors, and then you find out your neighbors are your neighbors. And now, you know, now that everybody's stuck home, it's different. It's different when everybody's stuck home now because of the quarantine um, and the pandemic stuff going on. That's one level. Then, then you already have certain personalities that they that have already been established. Then you add on to you the new guy in the neighborhood. So everybody's kind of anchored in. They, you know, they think they're the, you know, the boss of the block. Or you know, everybody has a role to play. You know, there's the guy who is the spokesperson for the block. Who he's the one who will walk up to your house and ask you questions about things that you're doing. That's your business. Uh, you have the nosy people who are on the block also. They have a certain role. And now most of these people on your block, you know, through this pandemic and through regular life, they all have roles to play, like I said. So they all get together and they have their own little uh, cookouts in their backyard and they talk about people on the block. So... <laughs> Well, I was asking because, you know, I usually do the podcast. I usually record from my room, but I had to move to the living room because 
you know, my bedroom window overlooks where the garage is of the apartment complex. And I have a neighbor that has just started to, she practices her singing in the garage. And this is like recent and it's like opera singing, which is beautiful. But like sometimes when I'm doing interviews, you just hear like this burst of singing. So it's an adjustment, but I'm learning my neighbor's habits is the thing. Yeah, everybody's learning everybody's routine now. Now you really know when people are in and out. You know everything now. It's just so, the world is so quiet, you know. Although we're not in the full pandemic we were a month ago, people are still stuck home. A lot of people are still stuck home. So their routine interferes with your routine now. So you will have to learn to love opera. Yeah, exactly. I'm, I don't mind it. It's just like when I'm doing an interview, it's maybe not the best timing. Uh, how would you say you're doing, you know, now that we're sort of months into this? It's, it's twofold. One is, I think um, sometimes the world plays tricks on you. Sometimes the world forces your hand to do certain things, to address certain things, and also to sit still for a moment and listen, you know, which is what I think as great as technology is, that we're, we're, we're using it right now, technology also distracted people from a lot of things. And in, in, in some sense, technology and our phones have become some kind of thing where we can't keep our eyes off it. This whole pandemic thing has slowed the pace down a little bit. It's allowed people to um, interact more, I think. It's, it's allowed you to put things in your own hands now. You know, I think we, we rely on so many people and so many things throughout our life that we almost had to take a step back and now you're almost relying on yourself to get those things done. It, it's, it's, it has changed us in a way. We don't know how this all works, how this universe thing works. We, we have no idea what's in store for us. We don't know if this is the beginning of the pandemic or is, you know, we, we don't know. There is no finish line right now. So we, we, we don't know really. How is it to adjust to it as a performer, like somebody that feeds off of energy and being around people? Like, are you turning to technology to sort of reach the masses right now? Or are you liking the sort of break? I'm going to be honest. I'm just a country boy from North Carolina in all actuality. I know I got a job. I know I'm an entertainer. I know all those things are part of me right now. Uh, A few years ago, because I was so busy doing film and TV, I took a year off of stand-up. And I didn't even realize I took a year off. So I did the same charity event a year later, and my buddy who opens up for me on the road said, you know you haven't been on stage since we did this show last year. And I didn't even realize that I took a year off. So right now, I haven't performed all year. All my theater gigs are all canceled. I don't know what's going to happen with TV production. I have no idea what's going to happen with movie production. You have to recreate the wheel in some sense. You know, you have to recreate not just the wheel in general, but your wheel. You know, what turns you? What makes you happy? You know, is it entertaining people? Is it giving your take on the world that's going to benefit things? I, I don't know what that is yet. You know what I mean? So I'm open to the universe. You know, I'm open to whatever comes my way. And I, I might not know what it is yet, but... I'm also very, um, you know, I love so many things. So many things inspire me. A lot, a lot of people think this comedians are, comedians are inspired by comedians and what's funny all the time. But I'm also inspired by music, sound, nature. I love cars. I love 
RVs. I love so many things. I love creating things. I'm a, uh, I studied graphic design in college, so I love to create and draw. There's so many things that make people happy that you've got to figure out what it is if the world changes and if the world doesn't come back the way in the form that you're used to seeing it, what are you going to do to, to put a smile on your face and make you happy? You know, I still love being around my friends. I have the same friends I grew up with in high school. So for me, it's like so many other things make me laugh and make me happy that I don't know if I'm relying on all this in that sense. I know people out there have to rely on certain things in their life. I do uh, tell those people also to expand yourself and your mind and, and, and get to know people and read energies and that kind of stuff. That's going to make you uh, just aware of what you can look forward to for yourself and for your families. And, you know, this is a hard time for a lot of people, you know. We're, we're relying on the government to give us stimulus checks. And, I mean, who, who would ever think you would be in the midst of two big things going on at the same time? You got a pandemic and you got social change that's on the horizon. And you're juggling two things right now. They both can affect you long term if you don't have the patience to ride them out. And start thinking now about what's next for yourself. Well, I mean, you talked about people having a hard time right now. And one of your co-stars, Jeff Garland, you know, was on Instagram, voiced how he was having a difficult time. And you actually did an Insta Live with him or joined him on his Insta Live. But talk about, like, what you do when you hear about, you know, someone you work with or a friend going through a moment like this and sort of being open and raw about it. Yeah. I don't think we understand. Some, some people don't realize that grounding yourself in that honesty helps, you know, when, when you got it out. You got it out to the point where you can hear yourself. There's so many things that, that when you say it out loud, helps you. So um, that's my buddy. I actually picked in on his Insta Live the other day and just kicked it with him for a little bit. Uh, he kicked me like last week. Yeah, he was like, you know, uh, we want to link up and, and kick in his backyard and talk a little bit. But that's helpful that you say it out loud. But then it also lets your fans know and your friends know that you're, you're a real person. You pinch me, I'm going to go out. You know, and that's what people need to hear sometimes. And it lets people know that we're, we're no different than, entertainers are no different than anybody else. We just have a particular job we do that makes people happy. But we also have the same issues everyone else has. You know, is I really consider what I do a job. You got to separate your job, what you do, from who you are at all, at all times. I do that all the time. And I always separate the TV person and my job from my real person. Like, my woman through the airport, if, if someone, you know, stops me and I feel like, oh, wow, they're interesting. I'll sit there and talk to them for 15 minutes. You know how many times I almost missed my damn flight talking to somebody because I felt like they needed, they needed that in the moment. And I, and I'll stop and talk to you for 15, 20 minutes sometimes. You know, I say, I'm gonna miss my flight, but I love you and I hope our talk helped, but I'm gonna miss my flight. <laughs> you know what I mean? So, but it helps, but that grounds you. And I think, you know, your honesty in what we do, it, it, it grounds you and it helps those who look up to you, to your voice. Well, not to be flip about it, but what would self-isolating at home be like with Leon Black and Larry David? You see this beard I grew in? I think we both have beards. 
Of course, Larry's beard would be gray, grayer than mine, but he's old, old dude, old school dude. I mean, no disrespect to anybody who's Larry's age. People find a whole lot about, people find a whole lot about each other. Even when we're working as my character, I always made it a point when we were in scenes to give him something new that he didn't know about Leon. I do think together in a quarantine, I think we would find interesting things to talk about, interesting views on life, on people. It would turn into a big interview with Larry, because I think that, um, but I also think we would, we would almost kill each other because, you know, I think we're both so anchored in as characters. You know, Leon has a very particular way. He has his, his cup of juice with Leon written on it because he don't want Larry to put his damn lips on his straw. That's the worst thing a person hates when you put, if they, if they catch you, catch them with their lips on your straw. And you clearly have written Leon's cup on the side of the recycled, recycled now, recycled Big Gulp cup from 7-Eleven. See? And think about this. It also allows you to, like, if you walk into 7-Eleven with that same cup, right, and you pretend you just had it, you already had that cup, you refill that cup. Because they seen you come in with the big gulp cup, right? You sip on it like, hey, man, good to see you. Even if it's empty, you still pretend you took a sip of it. And then you, you walk around and you buy some, you buy other stuff you need. But while you're in there, you refill your cup that you already paid for maybe a, a month ago. You had one a month ago, but you refill your cup. Now, he don't know if it's the same cup you came in earlier with or if you refilled it. He don't know nothing because you're buying some other stuff and other things you need. Like maybe you like those little Vienna sausages or do you know what goes good with Vienna sausages? Like little uh, like saltine crackers. Let's just say you go buy some saltine crackers and some Vienna sausages. And you put that on the counter and you put your big gulp cup, take your little credit card out or, or, or whatever, Vimeo or however you want to pay for it, Apple Pay or whatever you want to do. You pay for that stuff, but you already pulled the old okey-doke on the big gulp cup trick. See? You know, this, these are little things I think that make Larry and Leon so unique. I just want... <laughs> I just want our listeners to know we are not sponsored by 7-Eleven. I want the whole uh, episode just to be about big gulps and Slurpees. I thought you were going to give me something about like what Larry would say about the toilet paper shortage, but you took me to the big gulp. Oh, that's, that's see, Larry would definitely, we, we would, we would have a, we would probably set rules up. You know, because as you know, toilet paper comes in ply. They call it ply, right? It's a ply. It's called ply. Two ply, you know, single ply. The single ply is the one where your, your thumb busts through. You got two choices. You buy two ply or you double up the one ply. That means it's an extra, like, when you do this right here with the tissue, when you do that, when you, when you turn your, your hand, you got to do an extra, you know. And at my house right now, four is our, we go one, two, three, four. Four is kind of our thing. But if you got one ply, that four must be multiplied by two, which means you got to do eight. You got to do eight, eight plies, you know. The same thing goes for um, paper towels. Now, paper towels, those are, those are hard to find. People will fight you over paper towels now. I can see Larry getting into a fight in Costco over paper towels. I can see that. 
I can see him tugging back and forth on the last, the last damn paper towel uh, pack and get into an altercation with somebody. I can see that happen, you know. But then Larry's luck, he'll fight the person in Costco and then he'll leave Costco and then have another new fight with the same person in the parking lot. It's like, you again? You again? You know, Larry loves you again. He loves the word you again. You again? That's his thing. He's a very you again person. Like, I can't believe this. You, you, I just, I just saw you in Costco. I don't even know if Larry would go to Costco. I don't know if Larry would buy stuff in bulk. You know what? I'm going to ask Larry one day if he, if he's more of a bulk person or would he just buy little things at a time? You know, is he more like a guy who would buy one clove, one clove of garlic, like a little garlic, a little garlic clove or would he buy the whole bag <laughs> and would it go bad before he uses all of it? Or would he use it all at one time? I don't know. Now, you got you to think about that when you're going to Costco, if you're more of a bulk person. But things come in bulk. Is this what it's like on set? Talk to me about the dynamic between you and Larry. Does he ever break? Because I can't keep up with you. No, Larry is the king of breaking. Larry, his bottom lip starts to quiver a little bit when you got him on his heels. He'll start nodding his head like this. Huh. Then his side lip Goes up like this. Ah, 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 okay, okay. He's trying to hold it in, and then his eyes start to get weird. His whole body language changes. He starts to lean back a little. He leans back a little bit. His lip goes up like this, ah, and he goes, oh, 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 okay. Ah, ah. And you know you got him on his heels. And see, as a comedian who's an actor, we comedians read your read our audience very intently. We got bad intentions for our audience. We want you to wet your pants. We want you to spit your drink out, your mouth onto your girlfriend's back. I seen a guy do that one day at a club. But I say that because when I got Larry on his heels, you know, my stand-up kicks in. So I see him, like, trying to fight the laugh, and I start turning it up a little. I turn it up, you know, because my whole thing is, like, I made someone wet their pants before. That's, that's, that's done. That's good. But my next thing, I'm going to make a snot bubble come out of Larry's nose. You know you know what a snot bubble is? Oh, man. Snot bubble. Make a good old snot bubble come out of someone's nose. But you got to catch them on a day when the allergies are bad. You know, it's a timing thing. It's a timing thing. That, that's a rarity. That's like seeing a unicorn, you know, is to catch somebody on a day when you're working and they got a cold. And you're in a good scene that got a good laugh in it that allows the snot bubble to be... The snot bubble is a, is a, is a rarity. The snot bubble doesn't just come out of clear blue. The stars got to align for you to make a snot bubble come out of... Now, if you get a snot bubble out of one nostril, that's cool. But if you get the, the double snot bubble like out of both nostrils, whoo, that's golden. Do you remember a time that he did break? He breaks every... Every episode, every episode. If you watch the episodes very closely and you see him smirking, that means he just laughed and on the take before that. Oh, oh man. That's why we, we, we cross shoot. We shoot like camera this way, camera that way, because if at least you get one side of it in case Larry does break, I rarely break. It takes a lot to make me break because if you watch the show, Leon doesn't really laugh at all. His, everything is very like to the point. He's giving Larry something that he thinks Larry needs and he give it to Larry to the face. 
He just say, Larry, you know, what you should do is this. Very rarely, you might see Leon smirk a little bit, like he's amused by you, but Leon never laughs. I'm very centered. Leon is very centered, and he doesn't laugh at nothing. You don't work with a script per se. Like, there are story points, sort of like an outline, and you sort of create the dialogue as you go. And obviously, like you said, you have a background in improv, but when you're doing it for TV, how would you say the anticipation compares? Like, is everything a blur as you're doing it? Everything. Let me tell you something. See, I watch the show as a fan. So what I do is, even when I'm working, I'm, I'm, I'm going to be honest, my first three seasons, I didn't even read the outlines. I didn't, because I, I felt like I would overthink it, so I would never even read the outline. I would wait to get to, to set, and I would ask the head writer or the head producer, what, what's going on? What, what am I doing with Larry? And he would tell me, and I, I, could, I could process it better because I'm in the moment. And I would give it a natural reaction to it. I'd rather get a natural reaction to whatever's going on, you know, in Larry's brain. So what I do is I get you set. I talk to my producer. I say, give it to me. And he'll give it to me. And that's when I'll just give my natural reaction to a human, human nature reaction to, to Larry. I watch it as a fan. I say that because... Number one, I don't, I, I didn't read the scripts that much. And also when I shoot, I do my scene and I leave. So even this past season, I didn't even know we had those, those guests. Now I will say this too. Like Richard Lewis, he calls Larry, we call Larry the hog because Larry doesn't share me with anybody. It's almost like Leon, he exists, but it's like, what if it came out one season and said Leon wasn't even a real person? What if he was like the Snuffleupagus? Remember Snuffleupagus off of uh, Sesame Street? What if he wasn't even a real person? Like, he's just some figment of Larry's imagination all this time. You know how hilarious that would be if Leon wasn't even a real person? You know how crazy that would be? Because when we do these scenes, I leave. So I didn't even know John Hamm was on last season. It's a few special guests that I didn't even know they did the show because... I don't like to know everything. I want when the season comes out, I want to watch the show like a real fan of the show. But I'm gonna tell you, when you start improvising, you don't even realize what you said. So every time I see the show, I'm like, oh, I said that. I don't remember saying that. I don't remember saying saying that. You know? But at the same time, I just feel like you separate yourself from the character. That makes the character more committed to the character's view, not necessarily your view, but the character's view. The character's invested now in his decision and what his, his dialogue is. You know, even when I'm, I'll shoot, my wife will call me. I'll be driving home from set and she'll call and say how my day was. And then she'll say, what did Leon say? And I'm saying like, wow. I say, you know what? Here's what Leon said today, you know? It's not what did you say today? What did Jay, what, what, what did you say? What did Leon say today? Cause you know, Leon's a big trash talker. So she wants to hear the trash talk. What did Leon say to Larry today? Which is a cool way to think about it because it really allows you to be two people. There's yourself and your TV character. But it's something intriguing about saying something that only your character would say. You know, it's like, wow, it's deep. 
because you're almost living, you're almost living another life. Even though I feel like Leon's character, I, I'm not sure if a person like that could really survive and live and really function in life like like that. <laughs> Although we know people who are close. It's too much. As your wife sort of points out by asking, like, what did Leon say today? Like, Leon is one of the most quotable cast members of the show, probably the most. Um, and that's just from what we can see. I imagine there are so many things that, like, don't even make it in. Like, and, I mean, maybe it's hard for you to remember since you do it so off the cuff, but are there things where you were like, I really thought that was going to make it in and it didn't? Gosh, so many things that I thought should have made the show. One, well, I'll take one last season. You remember last season? Well, they didn't even use the scene at all, but there was a scene where me and Larry got into an argument uh, in the coffee shop. You know, you see this scene in the coffee shop and we were fighting about something. We were having a big argument in front of uh, customers. It was customers all in there having a good time, enjoying the Spite store here in the Spite coffee shop, Latte Larry's. And I tell people, because there are people just hanging out. They're, they're just sitting in there hanging out in the damn coffee shop without buying nothing. I said, man, these people ain't buying. These people ain't buying nothing, man. They ain't buying nothing. And then Leon starts to curse people out in the coffee shop. If you think you're going to sit your ass in here all day reading books, this ain't Starbucks. <laughs> Unplug your damn computer. Unplug your damn computer. You know, you ain't going to be logging on to our Wi-Fi in here. And I'm telling, I'm telling these people, you can get the hell out of here. You ain't gonna be up in here lamping all damn day. No lamping zone. You're not gonna sit here and lamp all damn day. And then me and Larry, they said, oh, what are you doing? What are you doing? What are you doing? These are customers, but they ain't buying nothing. They sit here on their damn computers. They sit there reading stupid ass books. You can't sit here and lamp all day. You can't make money if people in here lamping. You know, you gotta, people got to buy coffee. And then I say, you know what, Larry? The hell with it, man. I'm out of here. And then I walk out. And he's, where you going? And I say, you get a cup of coffee. <laughs> I'm in a coffee shop having an argument with Larry about coffee. And I say, I'm getting the hell out of here, man. I need a break. Where you going? To get a cup of coffee. <laughs> That's one of my favorite because it's so stupid. That I'm in a coffee shop and I'm saying I'm going to get a cup of coffee. Holy shoot. And when I hit the edit room floor, I said, I was anticipating it. I'm watching the episode. I'm like, please use it. Please, please use it. And man, he didn't use it. I was like, what? But that goes for, I mean, you name a scene. There's, shoot, there's the getting that ass episode, my first season. There must be four to five versions of getting that ass. There's like five versions of you getting that ass, Larry. One involves lighter fluid and, uh, and a match. Set that ass on fire. You know what I'm saying? I was like a, a arsonist, verbal, verbal arson, arson, and set that ass on fire. You know? There's so, <laughs> there so many versions of getting that ass, Larry. You know? And the funny thing about it was Larry never heard that term before. So for him, it was like something new. And actually during the scene, like I, I had to step out of Leon because I realized that I had to step out of my character because I realized that Larry 
never heard, ever heard the term getting that ass before. He, he didn't know what getting that ass meant. So that was really a lesson. That was really a lesson in getting that ass alive, a real lesson in getting it. What you saw, what you saw was a live version of someone not knowing what getting that ass really meant. Holy sh... What? He had no idea. He never heard it before. Larry's an old school Jewish guy who never heard the term getting that ass. You got to get in that ass. He didn't know what it meant. Thus, that became, you know, a natural... Look at his face. It's almost like he... His eyes... I could tell when I was saying it. His eyes were like, yeah, yeah, okay, okay. He had no idea what the hell it meant. But I think these two characters have evolved over the five seasons that I've been on the show. And then we, we've evolved into where we are now. We've, we've learned each other as characters, you know. And don't, don't forget, we took off like five years, almost a little more than five years off. And it still didn't seem like it was five years off. It was so weird, you know. And you got to remember, we came back our first day. Our first day back on set was the inauguration of President Trump. Wow. Wow. It's crazy. I don't know how timing works or how things work, but I'm just happy that I ended up uh, taking the improv class in the early 90s. I took it. I had an amazing teacher, Marty Friedman from uh, SCTV. And right after my class was over, that improv comedy club closed down in New York. So it was like I was supposed to make it and do that class before that club closed down. I was supposed to have that teacher. I was supposed to be able to take that improv tool and put it in my toolbox. You know, I was supposed to meet Larry. I was supposed to be in that audition. All this, you know what I mean? So all this, some, some way, some way that puzzle, your life, which is your puzzle, gets put together. This episode is brought to you by AMC's Better Call Saul. The drama Nerdist calls equal parts funny, heartbreaking, exciting, and tragic. Entertainment Weekly hails this past season as the most intense, complex, and formidable season yet, with CNN calling it a dazzling balancing act, and Rolling Stone hailing Bob Odenkirk and Ray Seahorn winners. For your Emmy consideration in all eligible categories. I want to talk about your time on SNL. You were a writer on Saturday Night Live for, what, three three years? Three seasons? Yeah. What did you think that was going to sort of open doors to? Like, what were your expectations? Oh, man. Because, you know, I, I had actually auditioned twice for SNL. I forgot who else was on that season, but uh, that was the first time I ever auditioned for SNL. I didn't make it then. But then... Um, the second time I auditioned for it, you know, I think we all have this expectation of, because it's such a big spotlight, SNL. Historic show, 
Eddie Murphy and Belushi and, you know, Garrett Morris, all these amazing people, Dan Aykroyd, all these amazing people who started on the show, you feel like, oh, wow, I'm a stand-up comedian, you know, I have my own thing that I do, but you think you can go on that show and change it, like, not change it, but become a iconic character, like these legendary comedians and actresses who have come through those doors, you know. I used to love Gilda Radner. That was my girl right there. So I'm so I'm so blessed that I got a chance to do so many things, so many amazing things. Like remember when she died, they had a tribute for her. I believe it might have been a, a a ski trip or something like that. And I ended up performing on that particular uh, trip. I think I might even still have the actual uh, information from it, like the flyer or something like that from it. So, you know, and I think because, you know, you grew up seeing, I grew up seeing these amazing people on the show. And I knew when I had the opportunity to be on the show, I said, man, I'm going to try to go on this show and hit it out the park, you know. And then I ended up doing an audition. I did good. I made it to the final three people uh, who did our test at uh, NBC. So one of the last three people is in bad, you know. I didn't make it. Finesse Mitchell and Kenan Thompson got it. Came back to L.A. And um, it was one of those things. And, you know, I'm a New Yorker, but, you know, I had just moved out here. And then um, they got it. And then uh, about, a, about a week or two later, uh, I got a call from Lauren Michael saying, hey, would you, you know, we ended up going with Finesse and Kenan, but we like you a lot. Would you, would you want to come and uh, be a writer? And I was like, oh, I said, you know, I never had a writing job before, you know, but um, I got a lot of ideas. I said, you know what, this might look good on my resume. So I said, you know what, let me, let me just go ahead in here. And um, but I felt weird. I, had, I said, damn it. But here, here's the thing that, that jinxed me. I always said that if I could do the same thing back in New York that I'm doing here in L.A., I would take it. You know, it's one of those things where you kind of, reach a ceiling in New York. You hit a ceiling in New York. It's like, damn, do I want to be a stand-up comic forever and just keep traveling on the damn road? Or do I want to take this to the next level? So you move to L.A. for your new opportunities. When they called me about coming back to New York, I was like, oh, man, I just got comfortable in this new condo. I'm like, God dang it, what do I do? And I said, you know what, let me just go and do it. You know, maybe I can go on that show and I can become one of those iconic super characters. I got some funny characters. You know, that's my initial thing to think about. And I knew it would look great on my resume. So I went back to New York and did the show. And three seasons on the show, I was a writer on the show. I did a warm-up the first two seasons I was there. I also was a bunch of monologues um, on SNL. And I also did Conan O'Brien. And Conan O'Brien was still at NBC. He was downstairs. And um, they would call me. They would call upstairs. You know, they found out I was working upstairs. They would call upstairs. To my, and talk to Lauren and ask Lauren if they could use me. And I would be, I did Conan O'Brien maybe 10, 11 times, just like on camera stuff. I would go as a writer, you know, go downstairs, do a sketch, get back in the elevator, come back upstairs, get behind the computer and keep working, you know? So, yeah, I was, I was happy, you know? And plus, that's that New York hustle. That's four checks. That's four separate checks. Check for working, check for warm up, check for being in the bottom, and a check for being on camera on Conan O'Brien. So, that's that, that's just that New York hustle. I was supposed to be there. I got the New York hustle in. I got a chance to be on camera here and there. So it worked out. And um, learned a lot. 
Well, before we wind things down, you know, I want to talk to you about the current movement we're seeing. I mean, there's a lot of conversation happening right now about systemic racism across industries, but particularly like in terms of Hollywood. Do you think what is happening right now, the conversations that are happening, do you think it will lead to drastic change? Or is time going to be the sort of deciding factor of how much of this has been lip service? It's hard. It's hard. It's hard when, see, I'll be 55 this December. So I've spent, you know, a lifetime, even as a young young person growing up, living through all the things that we're talking about now. So this is it's hard to be, to have faith in, in complete change is very hard because it's so anchored in, it's so anchored into the, to the, to the culture. It's, it's so anchored in. It's, it's like a part of me. It's a part of me. And it's all about 2020. We're dealing with the same things we've been dealing with all this time. It's like, it's almost insulting in a way to be a person of color because I consider black people to have been here so long at this point, it's almost like, why, why don't we have, you know, it's not just, it's not just things that you can pass through Congress and through executive orders. It's things that you deserve. It's not even like, if I gotta twist your arm to sign something, it's like even protesting, protesting Peaceful protests and get things done. But I, me personally, if I got to tell you every time what to do and what's going to make me happy and make people happy, I feel like I'm force feeding you. I feel like I'm doing, I'm, I'm forcing you to do something that you really don't want to do. So in, in turn, in turn, even when you do, even when you pass laws and do things, in my mind, I see the twisted lip. That's what I see. Even though, even though you're not doing it, I see that you really didn't want to do it. You really didn't want to do it. You know? And that's the, that's the issue with what we're dealing with right now is it's so embedded, so deeply embedded in some people got great, 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 great grandmothers or great or whatever grandmothers who were right on the edge of that life. My mom was born in 48. So I know she went through a whole lot in the South. I hear stuff all the time. You know, myself, I've been through a whole lot and I'm only 55. So I know how, how deep the embedded it is. So I say that because I know this is going to take a lot of patience, you know, and I, and I say this because I know it takes a lot of work because I see how slow the progress was from just from being a, 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 a man of 55, I see how slow the process was and how things, a lot of things haven't changed. A lot of things aren't going to change because one thing about changing the laws, but it's a whole nother thing to change the people. And until we realize that those people in White House, the president, Congress, they're just figureheads. It's really about the people. The people are the ones who run this. A lot of cultures have had revolutions. 
re I mean, revolutions where everybody agreed that this guy got to get out of there or this ruler got to go. This emperor got to go. This parliament got to go. You go back and look at every, every culture. A lot of them had their own revolutions and gained their freedom because they fought and they say, you know what? Enough. We can't live like this. We can't survive like this. And that's what we're having right now. We're not surviving in this form that you are piecemealing us. You're giving us a little teeny bit at a time, you know, and I don't like being, I don't like being distracted by little things that I know. I, I know, I know when someone's doing something for political reasons. I know when someone's doing something from their heart. And I know when somebody's really tired of what they've been going through. And it's terrible to be, to live like this. And the other day, a week ago, my daughter's 26 years old. I called my daughter. I, I just was thinking about something. And I gave her a call. You know what I did? I said, I said, baby girl, I just want to apologize for the state of the world. I want to apologize to you because I don't know if enough has been done to make sure that you can have all the opportunities you want out of your life. You know, I said, I know how quickly life goes. You only have one life. And I just couldn't imagine someone, it's two things, twofold. One, I can't imagine someone wasting their whole life trying to hold you back from something that you want to do, right? Affecting your life, but also affecting their own life, shortening their, shortening their own life and the things that they want to do in life, dedicated to holding somebody else down. When you could be out living, go to the beach, take care of your kids, play in the backyard with your kids, enjoy your life. Why are you dedicating your whole life and wasting it holding people down? that they can't reach your status, that they can't have a home, that they can't have anything you have. It's so selfish of a life. And I feel like, you know what, here's another, is it's, it feels like it's a burden on you. And I feel like, I'm, I feel like everyone, everyone who feels this, feels like they're lugging this weight around with them. And it affects your life. It affects your health. It affects your thinking, your mental. Let me tell you how, I'm going to tell you a little quick story. When I was younger, right, I was terrified of the police. Because I've seen and seen them in action. I might have been 12 years old, maybe, maybe 12 years old. So I had a bike shop I used to always go to. And, and what happened was I came out and I had to take my bike there to get it fixed. I dropped my bike off. This is how it affects you. This is crazy. So I came out of the bike shop, turned right, had my little ticket to pick my bike up later. I came out of there. I seen an old, an old white woman walking down the sidewalk, right? And it was a, you know how the concrete raises? It raises up a little bit. This woman tripped and fell flat on her face. And her purse, stuff flew out of her purse. 
and she was laying there and her nose was busted, right? And I froze. You know what I didn't see? For 10 seconds, I didn't even see her face. All I saw was the purse open, stuff all over the place. And you know what I was thinking in my brain? This is how fast I was thinking, even at 12 years old. If I walk over there and help this woman whose face is bloody, they're going to think I pushed her down and tried to take her purse. Or she was so old, what if she didn't remember tripping? What if she said, I don't know what happened? You know what would happen to me? They would have grabbed me. They would have said, look what you've done to this lady. And what, what was I, how can I defend it? I'm bending down trying to help her, but I'm the only one. There's nobody else like there. And by the time I, I panicked, I turned around and walked back into the bike shop. And I stood like just past the doorway and I just stood there shaking because I knew what would happen if I walked over there with her purse sprung out over the, over, all over the place and her face bloody. That's how, that's how it feels. That's how it feels knowing that you could easily, that could have changed my life forever. That quick, that quick, that quick. Because who's going to, she might not remember what happened. And she had to be 80 easily. And I said, and that's the story I tell when I tell, that's how it feels. That's the weight you carry around, the worry. And I, that's worrying about, and now at this age, at 55, I worry about, I still worry about myself. I worry about my kid. I worry about my nephews. I worry about my brothers. I worry about friends, my friend's kid. I worry about them because I know how it feels. And I know, I know what it is. And I know how hard it was to get my first home. I know how hard it was to get into a certain college. I know how hard it was to, to just live. I know how hard it was. I've been followed in stores. I've been, you name it. I've had police called on me for nothing. And I know how it is. And I know a good cop from a bad cop. I got friends who are cops, who are amazing people. A friend of mine, one of my buddies sent me a text message the other day. We actually known each other for over 20 years. He said to me in a text, I love you, man. I don't want this, this climate to ruin 20 something years of friendship. You know, I know what you're going through and I know what it is. And I, I'm sorry. I'm sorry that this is what you have had to deal with. It's not just the police that you have to worry about. Like I said, it's, it's people. It's how it starts. It somehow it starts in their upbringing. It starts with them being associated with people, it starts with them being well-rounded, it starts with them understanding, it starts with them listening. Listen. Fuck your, the hell with your opinions and how you were raised. Listen to what you are, listen to what you're thinking. Listen to what you are thinking. Listen to your thoughts. Listen to your thoughts of how you think. That is, that is the whole thing. Listen to, look where, look, look where you are. Look at what the world is. We can talk on phones. 
We could, we, could, we could do so many things in this world. But I don't think the attention has been given. Hell, last week we had a, a spaceship went back up. It must cost billions. Billions just to go up there into the space station. It must cost billions. You walk by homeless people. You walk by empty, empty, empty businesses. You, you, you make it hard for people to get loans who have dreams of owning their own, owning their own business. They can't even get loans. And, 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 and the more, the further you go with this, but here's what happens. You ever heard of the, uh, the cookie story? Okay. The cookie story is this. You got a, your man, right? You find out your man's cheating on you, right? And the other girl makes these goddamn oatmeal cookies. Somehow you find out she's been dropping off these goddamn cookies at his job on lunch break, right? Them damn cookies are delicious, right? Somehow you hear either a voice message or you find a text about them damn cookies, right? Sent from somebody else, right? Guess what you're going to say? Even if y'all stay together, one day you're going to have an argument. You're going to have an argument one day about something else, something else. You sick of it. You want to say, guess what's going to come up again? How about them goddamn cookies? You're going to bring them damn cookies up again. Now, guess what happens now in this climate? Every freaking hurdle that was put in front of us, every hurdle from slavery, from the Tulsa massacre, from the assassinations of our heroes, from lynchings, from everything you can think of that has happened over hundreds of years, it's going to come up. Reminders of where your parents have been. Reminders of, oh, oh civil rights movement, water splashing all over you from fire hoses and dogs ripping people apart. That all comes up clearly as something that's, that's that cookie. That's what about that fucking cookie? Everything our parents went through, our grandparents went through is resurfacing. I've been seeing so many black and white photos now of black people hanging from trees and, and white people standing there in suits and suits and hats. Like it's a, like it's a show. Like it's like, like, wow, we did it again. Look at this. We got another one lynched up. Holy shit, man. Belgium. The, the Negro Zoo, and there's so many things that are embedded in this world, how darker-skinned people get treated. You know, I told my wife this morning, I said, what if this happened? What if history changed? What if when the slave ships went to Africa and those were jobs? Holy shit. Did I just say that? What if it was jobs they, they, they just told all the Africans, oh, we got work, real work. And we came up here and we got paid to build this country. Holy shit. And we learned all this, how to build these houses and learn how to build roads and learn how to build railroads and learn how to do all this stuff. But then it was all over. We went back. Went back to Africa. Reparations, money in our pocket, our health, our mental health, and all of a sudden, hundreds of years ago, 
it's over. And all of a sudden, those people go back to Africa. And they build the fuck out of Africa. Holy shit. Could you imagine if it wasn't a, a situation where you got beat and lynched and it was like an opportunity like everybody else who came to this country got? Huh? Immigrants. They got a chance to come over and make, and make, and make a better life. Everybody got a chance to come and make a better life for themselves except us. Except us. That's crazy. People come over here. Oh, this is it. I get a chance to make a new life for myself. My kids get a chance to go to real colleges and real schools. I get a chance to open my own business. Imagine having that opportunity. If we had that opportunity, holy shit, ain't no telling where. Where my people would have been in this point. There wouldn't be no protesting in the streets fighting for shit that we should have had hundreds of years ago. Holy shit, could you imagine if we could come here for opportunity? Whoa, man, let me tell you something. Life would be different. You would see more butterflies. You would see more life. You would see more sunshine. You would see everything would be so amazing that you had the opportunity to have the same on the same. We're not, you know, you're not begging for anything. You work for it. And that was always embedded in us. You know, we worked our asses off. You know, but it's the difference between working and being forced to work and not having the same opportunities as everybody else. That is, that is the root of is how this country was, was made. You can't, you can't have these moments in history. That's why all these statues are coming down. You're praising people who fought in a civil war for slavery. Why are they hanging up in, in your city squares and like they're, they're heroes? I don't, we're the most, we're so backwards that we don't understand what could help this country become the greatest country in the world. And now we're, I think we're at the bottom. Across the board, we are above and beyond, way under in that category. Way, I mean, it's, it's, it's embarrassing that we are allowing this many people to die. Well, this, you know, you got to send your kid to school with like, whew, let me hug you because it's crazy out here. I don't know. I'm going to see my kid again when they go to school because that's how deeply embedded and rooted this is. And if you keep ignoring problems, you know, that's what's happening. We're being slapped in the face with reality. Now we go back to the pandemic. The pandemic allowed People to be home, people to be sitting still, but be quarantined. To me, this is the probably the best time that this change had a window of opportunity to make real conscious change. It's terrible that over a hundred thousand people lost their lives 
to this pandemic and it's going to be increased. But I say, but with a hesitation to, but it has allowed people to sit their ass still for a minute. I would think that it has allowed you to spend more time with your kids, more time with your wife. It has allowed you also to hear and see what has been going on all this time in front of your face. Everybody won't get it. Everybody won't get it. Some people are still fighting. All lives, all lives. But like they said, all lives do matter. But until black lives matter, all lives won't matter. So I say that because this pandemic has caused people to sit their ass still. Could you, you, I don't even know the magnitude of the protest and what we're fighting for if there was no pandemic, if there, people were going to work like regular, people were hopping on subways, people were going traveling, the planes were still full flying across the country. If everything was normal during this, see, and that's why I go back to the Rodney King riots. It was mainly designated in L.A., mainly. This is worldwide. This is worldwide. This is something different. This is a beast, but it's going to take a lot of patience. It's going to be a lot of teeth pulling. It's going to be a lot of wins and a lot of losses. It's going to be some, it's going to be some things that we got to fight a little longer for because it's just so rooted in. And that is the perception of black people. That is the understanding what black people have been through, but that comes from the people. Presidents change every four years if you, if you get them out of there. Their views change every four years. That this man does not have to be president again. He doesn't, doesn't have to have another term. Once he loses this term, you can give a damn what he says. He goes back to being a businessman who owns some failed casinos. He goes back to be, you know, who knows? He might go back to, to a host of damn apprentice again. We don't know what the fuck he's going to do, but he's not a life sentence. He is four years and he has the opportunity to get out of there in November. So people have to make their mind up what's important to their future, to their children's future. You want to spend your whole life fighting so someone doesn't have opportunity like you? That's what it is? That's a lot to waste your life on. That's a commitment to. That's a real commitment. That's a waste of your own life. That's a lot. You know how much strength it takes to hold this many people down? You got to be a strong ass person to hold this many people down all your life. Holy shit. But you're wasting your life. We're trying to get a life. You're wasting yours. There's a lot of work to be done. For sure. A lot of work to be done. And, um, you know, and that's why, you know, I'm not as outspoken on my social because I like to work a different way because I get depressed when I watch that stuff. It just drives me crazy. And it's only so much you can look at knowing you already been through a lot of that. 
you know, knowing your parents been through it. I'm happy that this new generation of young people have the fire in them and the energy to go out and protest. This is what happens. And this is all the repercussions of everything that has been going on. And we just hope that um, the playing field will be a little more even and people really would cherish life. Cherish their life, man. This, 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 this pandemic was put here for a dose of reality that you are not in control. You really, people think they're in control of other people. You're not in control. You are not in control. This planet can choose anytime it wants to, to shut this shit down. All this earth got to do is stop spinning one day. Let it stop spinning and watch what happens. Watch you burn the fuck up and watch you freeze to death in one day. All you have to do is stop. Let the earth just stop. That sun will burn the shit out of you. People got to understand, you don't control any of this, you know? Put money into homelessness, put money into programs for kids, and defunding the police department means allocate some money towards some other things that are going to make people better. It's going to make people less frustrated and less stressed out. Now your job is easier. Your job is easier now. How I see you is, is different now. Oh, I see you so different now. Look at this. There's no more stepping on the people who are homeless in the street. Oh, we resolved that issue with a few hundred million dollars. Holy shit. Look at that, man. Now people got somewhere to go. Affordable housing. Look at this. More programs for kids. My boys and girls club in Mount Vernon should be struggling to stay open. It should be struggling for, for supplies for the summer camp. It should be, it should be struggling for that. People about a service. Keeping kids off the street. Why should we be sitting there struggling for char charity events just to buy basketballs and, 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 and volleyballs and stuff? Why? T-shirts for the kids. We got to sit here and struggle for that? We all putting billions of dollars into, into, into police forces? I mean, above and beyond what you put into other programs. And these programs are easily preventive policing. That's, pre that's called preventive policing because you're, you're investing in people. You, your job is to uphold law and order, not be the law. So all this shooting unarmed people, this all could be eliminated. You so stressed out, you stressing us out. And vice versa, which is why all this is happening. But you gotta learn how to treat people different. You gotta have respect for people. You can't carry, you can't carry that shit into, it's like, it's like carrying your past relationship into a new relationship. That's what's happening right now. People, there are people out here who are really carrying what their parents did to people in their life, in their current life. Like, wait a minute. You do know slavery was a long time ago. Why are you acting like this? You're telling me to forget slavery. Let it go. Let it go. I'm still enslaved. We are still enslaved. Are you kidding me? It's a different form of it. Systemic racism is just as bad as racism. You think me not having the opportunity that you have is different? And let me tell you, this, I know people also talk about our celebrities different. No, we are not different. 
for me, it's ain't nothing but a job. I take more pride in my contributions and my time I give to anti-bullying, to the Boys and Girls Club. That, to me, I can live the rest of my life doing that. I can live the rest of my life doing just that kind of stuff. I host all the galas for the Boys and Girls Club. I, 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 I interact with amazing companies, real companies who really care about young people and inner cities, you know? And that could be the, I could be a Boys and Girls Club, uh, a director one day, a Boys and Girls Club president. I don't know, but I do know I love, that's what makes me happy. You know, this is what I do is a job. It's okay. I love to make people laugh. That's one thing. But my interest, things I really care about the most is my contributions towards young people and my consciousness about people just living their lives, man. Time goes too fast for you to be wasting your life. And that's where this country should be. And I wish we could get that from our leader, uh, some compassion and understanding to pull people together a little better. Well, JB, thank you for that thoughtful, honest answer. Um, I know I got long-winded. <laughs> no, but I mean, it, it's important to hear and I hope our listeners are listening to that. And I, I'll be truthful with you. I, I don't know how to segue into this lighthearted ending of our show. So I apologize in advance to just do this sort of 180 on you. Um, but our final question comes from our previous guest, and that is Matthew McFadian, who plays Tom on Succession, another HBO series. Here's his question for you. Okay. Um, can you please get me on your show? <laughs> Would that be okay? Please and thank you. Um, I don't think that's any problem since we are of the HBO family. And I think that um, we should do the old switcheroo. I call it the switcheroo. I show up as you and you show up as me. See how easy that is? And But, but we, we don't say anything. We just show up. We just show up on set as each other. You know how awesome that would be? Oh, man. I would, shoot, I, would film, I would film that just to see everyone's face. But that's what it is, man. That's what life is, man. Life is smiles and, and, and understanding people and who we are. And, oh, man, you know how awesome that would be, man. It would bring a lot of delight for viewers, I assure you that. We can do that. I don't think that's an issue. You know, we are part of the same family, so uh, HBO family, so I don't see that being an issue at all. Uh, I look forward to uh, seeing you on set then, man. <laughs> well, now, now I'm going to ask you to uh, ask our next guest a question. Our next guest is going to be Penn Badgley from Netflix's uh, drama, You. Um, and it does not have to be related to a show. Just like an actor-to-actor -actor question is fine. Since you're on a show called You, I want to hear your rant on me. Woo! I, that's like the best question. Or the best, like, uh, ask of, of our guest. I meet him timed. I meet him No, no, a minute straight, a minute straight. A minute straight, nonstop. Nonstop minute. Woo! That's sweet. Woo! I stop rant. 
I look forward to it already. I can't wait to tell Penn to do us that favor. Well, JB, thank you so much for taking the time. It was a great pleasure speaking with you. You know what, this is this is refreshing. It was it was fun to go different places. It was fun to laugh. It was fun to be inspired. It was fun to be touched. It was fun to be all and above. It's fun. Sometimes it's fun just to clear your mind what you're thinking about. And you know, it, this is great. That's it for the 26th episode of Can't Stop Watching. I'm your host, Yvonne Villarreal. Our producer is Paige Heimson, and our executive producer is Abby Fentress Swanson. Our engineer is Mike Heflin, and a special shout out to Elena Howe for booking the guest for this podcast. Come back tomorrow. We're talking to Penn Badgley. If there's any way he's real, I just, ugh. We got to have a lot of meaningful conversations with a lot of other people before we start talking to people like Joe. I, I got no patience with Joe. If you like Can't Stop Watching, subscribe and leave us a five-star review on Apple. Special thanks to Julia Turner, Matt Brennan, and Clint Shaw. We hope you're enjoying this podcast created by the journalists at the LA Times. Right now, access to facts has never been more important, and the Times is in the business of reporting them. Stay connected and subscribe because your subscription supports the production of podcasts like this one and our award-winning journalism. Visit latimes.com slash support LA Times to subscribe. Thanks for listening and see you tomorrow. 